all, welcome to the Pyramid Podcast, where three lads discuss all things English football pyramid. On today's episode, Liverpool win the Carabao Cup versus billion pound bottle jobs Chelsea. Everton have their point deduction reduced. What does that mean for the relegation battle? We'll review the key results in the Premier League as Arsenal and City win again. The Championship title race is alive following Friday night football between Leeds and Leicester. And we'll review the rest of the EFL action. And we'll finish with Laura, who talks us through Yeovil's defeat at Chelmsford. And it's Tomo's turn for this week's trivia question. I'm your host, Alex Murphy. And once again, I'm joined by Tom Lawrence and Tom Gallagher. Boys, get straight to it with the Carabao Cup final. Uh, Lauro, Klopp said that it goes down as one of his biggest ever achievements and up there with the other titles that he's won, such as the Champs League and Premier League. Obviously brought the youngsters on in extra time. Three young lads came on and what resilience was shown by them. But in the end, Van Dijk, who settled the tie. Yeah, for me, I just think that was a reflection of both Liverpool and Chelsea. We speak about Klopp quite a lot recently and how Liverpool were kind of moulded into this machine that it doesn't really matter what happens he's got them firing on all cylinders and playing in a certain way and playing for each other and playing for the badge and playing with pride and all those sorts of things and Chelsea was a reflection of their season or two um, over the last 18 months which has been powder puff which in segments look okay play quite well sometimes play really poorly at other times and ultimately um, you know there was only going to be one winner even though Liverpool managed to win it with a a team of under 21s on the field in extra time which is absolutely unbelievable and I'm not surprised that Klopp's given it the praise that that he has because it's no mean feat doing that particularly at Wembley on such a big occasion where you think even though Chelsea have got quite a young team they've still got a lot more um, games in their legs than a lot of the Liverpool players had and you know Virgil van, van Dijk come off the hour it was disallowed, come off the second hour, it was given. Um, and it kind of was in the script, wasn't it? And he was their biggest player on the pitch and he managed to deliver the winning moment. And yeah, good for the Carabao Cup because I thought it last season with Man United and Newcastle, it kind of had a bigger war around it. And the same this season, it was a big game. Klopp's last season and Potts really needs a trophy. And um, there was a lot of attention around it. And all we can say is well done Liverpool because that is an absolutely brilliant trophy win and hopefully for from Klopp's point of view will uh, kickstart the run into the season with the first of many trophies. Tomo, absolutely amazing for Liverpool as Laurie's just said but just a word on Chelsea as well because it looked to me and for everyone who was watching that Chelsea were knocking on the door to win it. Conor Gallagher had a couple of big chances, ball fell to Nkunku, other people had chance to, to win it as well but what happened at full time? They absolutely crumbled across extra time. Yeah, it was a strange one because the the 15 minutes leading up to um, full time, when when Liverpool made those changes and brought those three youngsters on, it felt like those youngsters needed a bit of time to get into the game. And that was Chelsea's big chance. And they had a couple chances and sort of same story throughout the whole season. They just haven't got that elite level goal scorer um, that can finish those chances off. So it was a game of fine margins at the end. At the end, What I will say, Pochettino come out after the game and said that his team um, were almost looking forward to the penalty shootout as mm. opposed to going to try and win it. And that was the difference between the two teams. Obviously, Van Dijk wins it in the, what was it, the 29th minute of extra time. So it was, and it was a set piece. So it wasn't the the most exciting extra time. Extra times ne- never are. Um, but yeah, maybe just uh, 
just an example of where the two clubs are. I don't think, and maybe also an example of and a reflection of the two managers, Pochettino. For all his um, good qualities, I wouldn't put him up there with like the like a like to have like a winning mentality like Klopp or a Guardiola or a Sir Alex Ferguson. He's obviously a very good coach and a very good um, seems like a very good bloke um, to have as your manager. Just maybe not quite ruthless enough to get over the line. Um, obviously, time will tell on that. Um, <clears throat> but look, the one thing I will say, just to touch on Liverpool again, is that the most annoying thing about Jurgen Klopp and that Liverpool team, apart from Andy Robertson, who is the most unlikable footballer on the planet, Jurgen Klopp has made me, a Man United fan, almost... I, I was I was quite happy that Liverpool won that trophy yesterday. Um, I, know, I know it's... You shouldn't really say it ever, etc. But I was happy for Jurgen Klopp. I was happy for those youngsters. Um, and it, go, it basically goes to show that they are quite likeable. Um, and that's the most annoying thing for me as a Man United fan to admit. One player who I thought came off um, the pitch terribly yesterday as well was uh, the other left back on the pitch, Ben Chilwell. He got into it with Bradley uh, in the first half. And then I think there was something where he had a go. I think it was Bobby Clark who was on for Liverpool in extra time as well, sort of like mouthing off at him. And then five minutes before the penalty shootout is about to happen and he's captain for the day, he's then substituted off. And uh, Pochettino's come out and said that Conor Gallagher was leggy. He went off a bit earlier and Chilwell was tired. But I'm sorry, as captain of that side with five minutes to go in extra time and a penalty shootout about to happen, you're not coming off that pitch and should not be even making out that you're ready to come off that pitch. And to be caught up in arguments with two teenagers, I just thought reflected badly for him. And I I, I really hope that Ben Chilwell is not near the England squad uh, in the summer as well. We've obviously spoken on the last pod about Luke Shaw being injured uh, and there being potentially an opportunity there for left-backs. But I, I thought he came across terribly in that in that game yesterday. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't his um, best day, and, and like you say, when he like Conor Bradley got booked as well for that incident as well. But when you look at the replays, like Conor Bradley did absolutely nothing wrong. It was and Mike Dean said on the commentary, um, he said, "Oh, that those things just happen where both players get booked for incidents like that." And it's like, well, actually, you've got to look at the incident um, set, like individually and say, "Well, Ben Shearwell was the guy, the aggressor in that situation. Conor Bradley did nothing wrong." I actually think what Conor Gallagher coming off was there was the moment for Chelsea because he was their driving force. He, I thought he was a really, really good performance from him. Um, okay, he missed a couple of the chances, but he's a centre mid. Um, sometimes you don't expect the centre mid to, to put away those chances. And he obviously, he's not like a Frank Lampard type where he's going to get 10 to 15 goals a season. But when he come off, actually, I thought that was the change like the change of momentum because he provided the energy and um, they, like it seemed like their energy completely sat from their legs um, when when he came off. And, and I was quite disappointed in like the likes of Madueke and, and Mudrick. I thought you bring in those two players on, okay, they are young, but you'd think they, they provide so much energy and, and going at both their full-backs and, and like the, the young Liverpool players, but they just did absolutely nothing. And yeah, if I was, you'd be mega disappointed if you're a Chelsea fan because Liverpool were there for the taking. 
Rory Jennings, the Chelsea fans, I think, like, called for basically Pochettino to go after that. He was like, that's one of the biggest kind of embarrassments uh, in Chelsea history, which is probably a bit of a uh, slight overreaction. But I do think that's a real, real missed opportunity for them. And Poch, I think, needed it more than anyone. I think he desperately needed a trophy to show a bit of progress. And there would have been no real better opportunity than that against a completely depleted Liverpool side. Laura, in the... um, after the game, Gary Neville sort of said if Klopp was running a 400 metres, he's just gone round the first bend and uh, got that first trophy after the first 100 metres. Where do you think the end of this season ends for Liverpool? Is that going to be the highlight? I know we've, we'll come on to the Premier League and you've obviously tipped Arsenal for the Premier League. But do you think that they can get a double or treble with the Europa League and FA Cup? And do you think they will? All depends on um, the the injuries to like Salah and Noon, particularly Salah. We know Yota's out for the rest of the season. Nunes will matter as well. I just, I was thinking that yesterday after the game. I was thinking he must be th- kicking himself, although there's not a lot he can do about it, that some of his best players are injured. Allison's out as well at the moment. Because if he had a full fettle, just imagine Klopp's best 11 every single week going into every game with that under their belts, full of momentum, all charged up. They, You'd probably have them after that as favourites to win anything they're in. Um, but they haven't. And that's why they ended the game with an under-21 side yesterday. And I think that's why they'll come up short probably in the rest of the competitions they're vying for. So maybe there was a little bit in that yesterday in terms of how much emotion was put into the celebrations because that might be the last trophy. And I think it's, I think there's a good chance that it will be. But you can never write them off. We're talking about a team, that uh, a Liverpool side that just managed to beat Chelsea over 120 minutes with an average age of about 16. So... Um, don't write them off, but no, I think that that may end up being the last trophy for Klopp. Just just quickly, I, obviously, um, Liverpool's average age yesterday was at no point in that game was lower than um, than younger than Chelsea's. But look, put my hand put my hands up and admit that the young players that Chelsea have bought have basically amounted to a billion quid. So it's completely different when you're bringing on um, the, the McConnells of this world. And obviously, um, Clark, etc. When they've got one or two games under their belt, so I'd, look, I do appreciate that. And I, what I want to say, and the difference between the two managers is when I think when one of the youngsters was coming on, you see Jurgen Klopp giving him a big bear hug and almost like geeing him up for the game. And you can just imagine like the confidence that gives that young lad, whether he's nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, he's had five games, ten games, one game, whatever it might be. And then you look at the likes of Mudrix and Majueki come on, they're not getting like that same love and and um, adulation, I guess, or g up from Pochettino. I know they're different characters, the two managers, but I know who I'd prefer to play with or play for, um, and it's Jurgen Klopp. Referring to the youth in the Liverpool side, maybe not so much age, just age in the legs. Do you know what I mean? A lot of Chelsea's young players, like you've just alluded to, Tomo, uh, 50 to 100 million pound players a lot of Liverpool's young players are literally academy players that are being given a chance because yeah. everyone's injured so two, two slightly different things not necessarily age um, just experience and what you expect from certain players i.e. we'd expect an awful lot more from Caicedo and Fernandes than we would a couple youth players like Neil Dan's son came off the bench yesterday that made me feel ridiculously old Neil Dan, who I remember as a young lad playing for Colchester against Jovo at Hewish Park, his son come on. Um, I'd expect more from Mudrich, who played loads of Championship fo- uh, Champions League football before, um, or Europa League football at the very least. So 
Um, yeah, no getting away from that one for Chelsea. And I, I agree. I don't, I, you don't need to overthink it. Look what Klopp's doing to his players on the touchline to rev them up and look what Poch is. And I, I was quite supportive of Poch at the start of the season in saying that the problems at Chelsea won't be down to him. But I think he peaked at that Champions League semi-final win against Ajax with Spurs and his stock has just continued falling ever since. And that's about six years ago now. So, long way back, I think. And sorry to jump the gun, boys, because we will talk about the FA Cup and we'll talk about the Championship uh, later on. But, Lauro, Chelsea, obviously, 120 minutes in the legs, got Leeds in the week in the FA Cup, starting to get to the latter stages now. You must fancy Leeds to have, a, well, with their current form, a very good chance of progressing into quarterfinals. Yeah, depending on what team leads... I know this is a ridiculous thing to say because we're the championship team playing against the Premier League team, but obviously we're right in the midst of an automatic promotion race and maybe even a title race in the championship. So if he puts out our best side, um, I would be disappointed if we didn't beat that Chelsea team, to be honest with you, and I'd be expecting us to go through. But I can, I can actually imagine us making some changes. So it'd be interesting to see there. But you're right, lots of... Uh, Lots of game time in the legs of the Chelsea players, so it's definitely a banana skin for them and a very interesting game to watch. Win the FA Cup or get promoted back to the Premier League? Promoted, 100%. Cool. Tomo, Everton, 10 points uh, deduction. Put them right in amongst it in the relegation battle. News broken today that that's reduced to six points six points now so they've kind of had almost like a a four point bonus if you will which has taken them above Brentford and Forest um is that it now for Everton though is that kind of all of their charges sorted or is there still that separate case with Forest and potential for additional charges and point deductions to happen in the future yeah so this one is in with regard to the first um charge of financial um irregular irregularities They have got another hearing to come in a couple of weeks' time with regards to that second charge, which is alongside Nottingham Forest. So it's hard to imagine that that Everton get two points deductions in the same season, to be honest. But if you remember rightly, the reason why they've been given this point deduction this season is because they requested to delay it from last season. So... They've been they've been deducted six points, which actually I think is probably fair enough. Ten points I always thought was a little bit too harsh, but maybe um, whoever's dishing out those punishments had one eye on the appeal and one eye on it probably getting reduced. Um, so yeah, look interesting interesting to see whether or not the Forest and Everton second um, charge and that whether the the punishment comes in March. But the problem is. So we're in February now. We've got fourteen or thirteen games left of the season. It, like, imagine if in a month's time, Forest and Everton get another six six points, and they've they've only got four or five games to make up for it. Or it feels it just all feels very irregular, and um, just the process. I don't know. It, it's, it's all a bit muddled in the, in the air. But obviously, if you're Sean Dyche, Everton have really struggled lately. I think they've got one win in nine Premier League games. So that four points that they've just gained immediately is unbelievable to them because now they're 15th. I think they're four, or was it five points above the relegation zone? Um, little bit of a cushion. So, and you, you can imagine as well, 
the uh, the morale boost it will give the coaching staff, the playing staff. Um, so look, let's see what happens. But those sec those second charges for Everton and the first charge for Forest. All you want as a football fan is you just want it to get done quickly, so you know, and then you can move move on and and plan and all those all those sort of things. So yeah, look, let's see let's see what happens. And for Forest and Everton, obviously it's it's kind of going to be decided what will happen with them from a points deduction point of view. But with that news on Everton today, Loro, what are you thinking if you're a Forest fan or a Forest board member or a Luton board member or a Brentford board member like that's quite a big decision like you've factored in Everton's 10 points they're now been cut to six they've got a four point bonus you must be looking thinking well hang on can we appeal the appeal because that doesn't seem fair yeah you're exactly right that Luton in particular who are the ones sat below the relegation line that actually have a chance of staying up they, you know, they've been playing their fixtures, pricing into the equation that they're within a point or so of Everton or above Everton at certain times. So they might have been happy to take a draw and, you know, play in a certain way in certain games to try and see out certain results based on the fact that they were very close to another team who have now just leapfrogged four points up above them. So hang on a minute. How can you allow us to go out and play football thinking we're in X position and then change it when we've got about 10, 12 games left of the season, meaning we've got a mountain to climb, when none of this was anything to do with us in the first place. I think it's absolutely horseshit. And to, to, I was reading what? up about it today, like how they came to 10 points deduction. in the. I don't think Everton should have got a 10 point deduction, but make sure you get the decision right in the first place. I was reading through the Everton statement and they said, well, the punishment for going insolvent is nine points. So they must yeah. have been murdering people to get a 10-point deduction. Who made that in the first place? Honestly, it's just absolutely catastrophe. Uh, Everton got it this season because they requested not to have it last season. How can they be requesting anything? It's a punishment. The reason they didn't want it last season is because they were bang in trouble under Frank Lampard and um, all the rest of it and managed to survive. So that affected every other team that went down last year, including Leeds. So the whole yeah. the whole thing is a crock of absolute horseshit. I feel sorry for Luton. Um but I think the bottom three will go down now. What what needs to happen? Because this sort of points deduction thing with these PSR rules, is it seems to be a relatively new ph- phenomenon in the Premier League. What needs to happen is they need to have a procedure in place so that when teams break these rules, at the start of the season, they get a six-point deduction or a three-point deduction, and then it's final. No appeals, no points. So then everyone from the start of the season knows where they stand because that's that to me seems like the only fair way of doing it. And the, so the process needs to be slicker. There needs to be rules and, and protocols in place so that the punishment comes during the summer and at the start of the season. So that then you start the Premier League season with minus six or minus 10 or minus nine, nine whatever it might be. Um, because these mid-season point deductions or appeals, etc., is just an absolute write-off for everyone involved. And Laura's right. If you're Luton, you'd be absolutely devastated right now. But in the same token, you're hoping that Forrest and Everton get a point deduction in a couple of weeks' time. So it's a weird, weird um, state of affairs. Also, yeah. it's Monday today, and that point deduction or 
retraction of the point deduction back to six has broken on the same day that Brentford have got a big game against West Ham, a side Brentford that no one's tipping to go down. And we're probably just starting to think that, you know, pick up another win here or there, Ivan Tony back scoring, and they've probably pulled away from it. They're now pulled right into it. And that might just affect them tonight thinking, shit, actually, we probably need to go and win here at West Ham. Um, they've been going to win anyway, but it just can change the mindset for squads, as you say, like might turn the Luton players a bit more downbeat, might start to make the Forest and the Brentford squad start to panic a bit more. So real like potential implications for those clubs off the psychological effect of it as well. You said yesterday in the Liverpool-Chelsea game, Murph, when Van Dijk's header got ruled out, it was like a double-edged sword because not only did Chelsea not concede a goal, they're all pumped up with momentum now. And it's the same here. Luton have effectively lost four points because they were one point from safety and now they're five. Do you know what I mean? That's why it's not fair. And exactly what Teagle said, if there's going to be any points deductions, A, make sure you get them right in the first place and don't just make up figures. Because the ten points was ridiculous, and then where does the where does the six points come from? Who, who's who's worked out that it's got to be four that's taken off, and also it has to be done at the start of the season, so everyone's on a level play, level playing field. Luton might have gone into a game against Man United the other week. Um, all right, they lost, but they might have set up to draw, thinking right, we've set out all our games for the season, we can afford to go for a point here. If they're five points adrift, they might be thinking, no, we need to win this game. We need to, yeah, you know, go for the jugular and try and get three points and if we don't get it and we end up losing well we had to go for it do you know what I mean it affects the decision making the managers and the way that teams are setting up and although you shouldn't be counting on other teams getting points deductions it had already happened they've had the 10 point deduction that should have been it final crap yeah the whole thing affects the integrity of the league and when when we talk about the Premier League over the last few weeks we talk about how much of a like the biggest and best league it is in the world, the biggest brand. It almost we spoke about it last week as eclipsing the the sort of the aura of the Champions League. Yet this is a very bad look, and it doesn't do the league's image any good at all. Whoever's making these um, rules up about the points deductions, I genuinely think it's a couple of geezers sat around a table with a pair of dice, right, and they're rolling them, and they've gone, "How much should we give Everton points deduction here?" And someone's rolled a ten. And his mate's gone, won't want to be you, but you've got to stick with it. Do you know what I mean? And then they've gone, nah, 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 let me have another roll. And they've tried to they've, they've tried to bury their head in the sands. And everyone's gone, hang on a minute, 10 points. That's more than you get for insolvency, not being able to pay your debts whatsoever. All right, all right, we'll go again. Ah, we rolled a six. Will that do? And now everyone's like, oh, yeah, that's all right, because Everton are five points clear, so everyone's happy with that. And Luton has stood there, miles out at sea, waving their hands for help, thinking... What have we got to do to catch a break? So, yeah, I feel sorry for Luton. And hopefully someone else gets a points deduction now because they might as well make it up as the as, as we go along. Well, interestingly, the Man City 115 charges that's always kind of there and thereabouts in the news, you know, if that suddenly came about and City got a 10-point deduction, that's like title race over for them, isn't it? You know, something like that. So, um, you, Just quickly this... on that, do you know why that's taking so long? Because Man City deny, I know it's a much more complicated case, but because Man City deny all wrongdoing and they're fighting every single charge through lawyer, expensive lawyers and all that stuff, Everton and Forest um, have have admitted that they that they failed the PSR rules, and I think it was oh, you're allowed to um, account for a hundred and ten million pound loss over a three year period or something like that. So they admitted to those rules. 
and, and to breaking those rules and not being able to fit in those financial rules. But you're almost punished for being honest. Well, that, okay, that... that's like you, you can you can say that now because the punishment hasn't been dealt to Man City yet. But it does look that way, and optics are quite important. And it looks like if you're if you fall foul for any of these rules, you might as well fight it tooth and nail. Well, it's how much money you want to put yeah. into it, right? City have got unlimited resources to fight it. Everton and Forest have probably weighed it up and thought we're already in financial difficulties or troubles. And that's why we're in this trouble. We know deep down that we're guilty as City probably do. Have we got the resources to basically get the best defence team to get ourselves potentially off of this? Or do we take the hit now? City are taking the financial gamble that they can get the best counsel in the world and and get off of it basically. And if they don't, they'll take whatever that point deduction is, which if they're, if they've got a great appeal team and things like that, and that ends up being somewhere between three and six points, will Man City care about that in a, in a potential start of next season? Just on on, just one example of how far Man City are going to fight these charges. They, um, they objected to the, to one of the Premier League's um, top paid lawyers because he was an Arsenal fan. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, like they're they're going for it, and they obviously they want to fight for their innocence, which obviously they're well within their rights to do. But the optics wise, it just doesn't look good for the Premier League. None of this looks good for the Premier League. Yeah, and they they've probably spent more money on legal fees than Everton and Forest did breaking the fucking rules on the financial fair play. Do you know what I mean? Because they can. So it's all backwards, isn't it? Let's move on to the Premier League, though, boys, because there was a lot of uh, big games this weekend. And Laurie, I want to start with Arsenal uh, beating Newcastle 4-1. Thought they were absolutely rampant Arsenal and completely carved Newcastle apart. And as we've spoken about on the last couple of pods, just seems to be going to strength for strength, putting the ball in the back of the net and really peaking at the right time. Yeah, they look like a, um, a title-winning team to me. And I know you've got to do it on more than one occasion, but... They have put a little run together now that looks ominous since the Liverpool win. And I was just watching that game thinking they've got the best two centre-backs in the world in terms of a partnership in Gabriel and uh, Salaba. Um, they can build from that platform. And when their strikers and when their forward players are firing, all, firing on all cylinders like they were on Saturday, they weren't against Porto and came up short but they were in the league on Saturday against a decent Newcastle side that may not have been in the best form, but you'll have easier opposition to play against this season. I just think they got that feel about them that they look like they think they're going to win it, which might have been the bit that they were lacking last year when they come unstuck and let City leapfrog them. They kind of started jittering, getting nervous and losing silly games like against Nottingham Forest and things like that at the back end of last year. So, um the, the the biggest compliment I can give there is they felt like a team that think they're going to win the Premier League and they played like it as well and they blew Newcastle away, didn't they? Really impressive performance again. Tomo, on the other hand though, Newcastle, they are starting to get back towards full strength. I know they still do have a couple of injuries, but their team's starting to look like the Newcastle side that was so strong last season and in parts of the start of this season, but they just look absolutely shot to me and particularly defensively. I thought they looked so fragile and I know they're tweaking a bit at the minute about what their strongest defence is and things like that, but I, I thought that was really worrying watching them. Yeah, look, there there will be times that we can all get on the back of Eddie Howe, but 
Um, especially they've had many sort of poor performances this season. But against Arsenal, I don't think you should really um, get on their case too much. Okay, they didn't really put up a good fight, but Arsenal were electric, um, especially in the first half. They took their foot off the pedal in the second half just because they could. Um, I wouldn't be too downbeat on Newcastle based on Saturday's performance. The worrying thing is obviously the longer-term trend where, okay, maybe three or four months ago, all the games were getting on top of them, the injuries, the suspensions, all of that stuff. It seems like all of those excuses that they were making at that time are starting to get a little bit easier, but it's just a squad bereft of confidence. And um, yeah, look, it's, it's a very important end to the season for Eddie Howe because if between now and the end of the season, they start showing some form, um, start showing some encouraging signs, then maybe the owners might say, okay, we'll give it another year with Eddie Howe. But if they carry on this way and finish 9th, 10th or 11th and they're still putting in these poor performances, then you wouldn't be surprised if Eddie Howe gets the boot, which I think will be... Look, that's how football works these days. You live and die by your results, but I just think it would be incredibly harsh given how well he's done in his first in his first 18 months as Newcastle manager. But it goes to show you just can't have a bad season anymore. If you have one bad season, you just don't get let off. You just probably get sacked. But like I said, it's he's got two or three months now to the end of the season where it's very important to start showing some signs of progress again. I find it very difficult to see a world where Eddie Howe is still the Newcastle manager next season. And again, this isn't a personal um, opinion. Not saying that I think he should be sacked because I think you do well to remember how bad they were before he came in and obviously the job that he did last season. But if you've got West Ham fans that want David Moyes out, they're level with Newcastle on the table. They're a point behind with the game in hand. And that's West Ham. And they want Moyes out. They haven't been taken over by Saudi billionaires. So it wouldn't surprise me if a decision's probably already been made and works are ongoing behind the scenes to identify who the next guy's going to be. And I just feel like... Eddie Howe may end up being a gatekeeper for that kind of elite level manager that could come in and try and take Newcastle to the next level. So not to liken Eddie Howe to Derek DeJora, um, but I think that could be where we're heading. I think for Newcastle, that's potentially a bit of a worrying prospect though. Like there's obviously the ongoing Ashworth debacle with Man United and all of the wealth of knowledge that he's taken over and how well respected he is in the game. We've spoken before about how Newcastle haven't gone and sort of gone for superstar manager, superstar players. They've still been quite smart with recruitment. You know, Eddie Howe's been a a sound choice. If they suddenly start to think, right, actually, that's not quite worked out with Eddie Howe. We're now going to go for a Jose Mourinho and we're going to try and spend big money on big signings to bring them in that could put them in even worse position than where they are now. I, I think if I was a Newcastle fan, I'd be slightly worried that with a man of Ashworth sort of knowledge leaving, potentially Eddie Howe leaving, and then the the owners, the Saudi owners starting to think, well, can we spend some money to bridge that gap that's shown this year? That They might start to go down that route that maybe Man United have in the last decade of spending a lot of money on names. And um, we've all seen what that's done for United. Yeah, but... Can I just say, I would absolutely love Jose Mourinho back in the Premier League. And I think him to Newcastle is an absolute shoo-in. At some point over the next five years, it's an absolute shoo-in. And OK, I don't think Eddie Howe deserves a sack or 
like I said before, if he does well between now and the end of the season, I don't think he will get sacked. But if he does and they bring in Mourinho, fantastic. Grab the popcorn. Unbelievable. Brilliant for the Premier League if he comes back. I think they'll be more shrewd than that. I think they've shown signs of being quite uh, meticulous in their appointments, whether that be Eddie Howe, whether that be some of the signings that they've identified, and even the backroom staff, people like Dan Ashworth. wouldn't surprise me if they're in the mix for some of the more, um, not hidden gems, but up-and-coming managers, like the guy that you mentioned quite a lot that you'd like at United at Sporting Lisbon at the moment, Yajabi Alonso's of the world. I think they'll go down that route rather than, a, you know... Jose Mourinho or when Man United appointed Louis van Gaal or when Everton appointed Carlo Ancelotti. Do you know what I mean? I think the sort of the new school is maybe the way that Newcastle will go, but we'll see. That was a weird time, wasn't it? When Don Ancelotti, one of the most successful managers of all time, just had a stint at Everton and now just leads Real Madrid to La Liga's and Champions Leagues. Just had a stint on Merseyside and went horribly. Yeah, and he brought in James Rodriguez, who actually, to be fair, for the first couple of games, I remember there was a point in that first season where Everton were top and James Rodriguez looked unbelievable. Yeah. Um, but anyway. They've had digress. some managers though, haven't they? Bobby Martinez, Rafa Benitez, Carlo Ancelotti. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, sometimes I feel sorry for their owner. Or can't, what's his name? Mashuri. Is that his name? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he must be thinking. Hang on a minute, I've appointed Carlo Ancelotti, <laughs> Roberto Martin, Rafa Benitez, and I'm battling relegation every year, and everyone's just having a go at me, saying I'm losing money hand over foot. So maybe some sympathy there, but anyway, we digress. Moving on, boys. Man City, they did the business uh, away at Bournemouth. And actually, this is a bit of a reversal from where potentially we were earlier in the season, where it felt like Arsenal were grinding out the results and not playing particularly pretty. It now looks like Man City are relying on sort of one goal games, you know, the draw against Chelsea, squeezing past Brentford, squeezing past Bournemouth at the weekend. But Pep does his normal thing, says he's so, so proud of the team. Can't believe how well they're reacting and getting over the line. No other side would react like this off the back of a treble winning season. They go into some big fixtures now with the Manchester derby. I think Liverpool, Brighton and Arsenal all in their next four. Um, but it sounds like Pep is as up for it as ever, Tomo, to to try and retain the, well, win the treble again, basically. Yeah, well, he, his his menta- like winning mentality is up there with Sir Alex Ferguson like, and GOAT level status. Um, what I will say is we, we always talk about this part of the season where we, we all worry that Man City will go on a run and then go clear of everyone. But they've won 14 of their last 15 games. Okay, not all in the Premier League, Club Club World Cup and FA Cup, etc., included in that. But they've won 14 of their last 15. Yeah, so the, they're in the middle of that run. Okay, do you think not... it's because do you think it's because their runs normally are like four nil, five nil, six one, eight one, three one, and this is more like one nil against Brentford, one nil against Bournemouth, just sort of eking over the line, not well, conceding chances for equalizers yeah. as well. Yeah, look, they're not perfect this year um, by any stretch, and they haven't been all season. We spoke a lot about in at the, start of the earlier parts of the season, but. If you remember Man United's winning t- title-winning teams, they went to like away to your Bournemouth or whoever it might be, and just ground out wins. They might not have played well on the day, but they just ground out wins. And it is worrying to be honest because they're. Let me just have a look at the table. They're one point off Liverpool. They're one point ahead of Arsenal. Okay, they've had a really good run of results, but but they 
it feels like they're just edging closer to clicking and then getting your three nils, four nils. I don't know whether it will ever happen because they haven't really shown that many signs of clicking. Um, but they're, they're an elite team. Um, and even when they don't play that well, like they didn't really light it up against Bournemouth. They, they won and probably had a couple more chances to win um, more comfortably. So, like you said, that, that run in the upcoming fixtures, they got Man United this week. Oh, look, that Man United game is an absolute banker that they'll go and win four or five nil when it all, it all click. Because Man United are so easy to play against right now, we'll concede 25, 30 shots and probably lose five or six nil. Um, so, yeah, look, I, I wouldn't worry about City. The only thing I'd like, like bring it back to my initial point, they have won 14 of the last 15 games. So are they, have they already had that amazing run or are they going to extend it by, do you know what I mean? Have a 25 game unbeaten run. You just don't know with them. I'm not convinced by City at all. Um, and if they've won 14 in the last 15, I mean, the next five fixtures, like you alluded to, Murph, Man United, Liverpool, Brighton, Arsenal, Villa, they, they probably had an easy-ish run in terms of, relation to the Premier League. They have. I think Phil Foden's actually carrying them at the moment. I don't think they've got many players in form at all. And I think they're scraping through. Tomo said they're probably they could be on the verge of clicking. I think they could be on the verge of a couple of shit results again. I, I'm not yeah. I watched a Bournemouth game. I didn't enjoy it. Um and it is a testament to how good Pep Guardiola is that even when they're not playing at their best or anywhere near it in my opinion, they're still eking out results. But that's all right getting over the line against Bournemouth. Is that going to get them over the line against uh, Klopp's swan song at Liverpool and Arteta revved up at Arsenal. Not for me this season. Um, I think that Man City will do well to come away with anywhere near maximum points from their next few games and may lose some ground on the title race. If they didn't have Phil Foden in the in the last two months, I think they'd be absolutely way off it because he has been probably the best form of his life, I would say, from what I've seen um, and probably consistency in terms of the run that he's had in the team. But overall, they're not at it in the same way that they have been at this point in the previous seasons. And little things like Kevin De Bruyne, he's obviously got an issue. He can't start games at the moment. They're only using him sparingly. Haaland, although he will he will return to, to being inevitable, is going for a sticky patch of form. I'm not sure they know what their best back four is at the moment. And yeah, I've said it before, they're not my favourites for the title this year. And I don't think they replaced um, the likes of Goodwin well enough in the summer. But yeah, not convinced at all. And I'd be um, not looking forward to playing Man City at the moment. But I think if there's ever a time that they might slip up, it might be within these next five games against the likes of United and Liverpool and Brighton and Villa. Tomo, you alluded to the Manchester derby upcoming this weekend. And I think the narrative that was being built for it was Man United unbeaten across 2024, won every game, picking up results against Wolves, against Aston Villa. Uh, picking up some big results going into that game. And they had a game at the weekend home to Fulham where many expected them to win, but they didn't. And actually, I watched that game and they were completely outclassed all around the pitch in effort, ability, everything, you name it. Do you think that was a bit of a reality check from United from their recent results versus their recent form? Uh, yeah, I would say so. Look, no, no matter how well you're playing or whatever, you should go to um, Old Trafford on Saturday and beat a Fulham team. Um, so it doesn't really take away from that performance. But 
Yeah, we, we spoke a lot about United winning a couple of games lately, but we've always sort of put an asterisk to our um, praise, I guess, of the likes of Hoyland and, and Garnacho doing well and, and Kobe Mainu, Kobe Mainu playing well. We've all, always sort of put an asterisk to our um, praise by saying, but we still don't, we're still not playing that well and we're scraping past teams and okay, there are some encouraging signs. We're still quite easy to play against, and we've we've conceded over a hundred shots in our last five games. We've conceded over one hundred and thirty-three shots in the last seven games. We're so easy to play against, and when you come up against teams who can um, finish the chances, i.e., Man City this weekend, then I think we might get put to the sword. Um, Really, we were lucky against Fulham that they had so many chances, especially in that first half where they they pressed us really well. I think we're like whether it's Casemiro or Rafael Varane, either one of those two players are quite clearly like a a trigger for teams to to press and they press all together and quickly. And like I mean, Awobi obviously got the winner, um, good for him, but he should have had a, a goal in the first half. Yeah, look. I just think it's just where United are at the minute. Okay, the perform the the results turned the corner. We we I think we won five games in in January or whatever it was, um, including the Newport game. I don't think the performances were that quite quite that good. Even Newport, we won that game against the Newport League One team. Um, yeah, yeah, we really struggled. We were two 0 up and they they got it back to two all. So yeah, not really that many positives um, about the performances. The, what I will say is all the backroom staff talk and, and Sir Jim Ratcliffe talk and bringing in a new structure to everything, that that is a positive. But obviously, as we spoke about, that will take time to bed in and for us to see the effects of that on the pitch. And Laurie, from obviously a bit of a... Tomo and I probably reflecting on his Man United fans are being ultra critical of it do you think that's a fair assessment or do you think that actually United have gone as I say to Villa Park gone to Molyneux beating sides like that in and around that top part of the table and actually that's just a a bad day's work at the office against Fulham and needs to just be written off not necessarily written off Um, obviously it's a bad day at the office and I agree that Man United should be beating Fulham at home but no disrespect to Fulham because they're a decent side with some decent players as well this season but I think you go a little bit too far, Tegel, in your analysis of Man United's uh, form versus results this season. You can't go unbeaten. Up until Saturday, they were unbeaten in 2024. And a phrase that you use quite a lot is, we're so easy to play against. Well, Wolves didn't think so. Luton didn't think so. West Ham didn't think so. And High Flying Villa didn't think so either. If they were that easy to play against, someone would have salvaged at least a point. But There was four back-to-back wins in there before the Fulham result yesterday. I'm not saying all the Man United fans should be um, jumping for joy at everything at the moment, but I think four back-to-back wins and being unbeaten um, in 2024, coupled with all the sort of movements in the backroom office, with Dan Ashworth possibly coming in, the guy from City um, taking the reins of the sort of recruitment and director of football side of things, it's more positive than negative at the moment. So I just didn't want to come on 
this podcast today just because they've lost to Fulham at home, which okay is a poor result, and then just open up that bottle of negativity and shove it back down everyone's throats again. Because although United aren't scintillating and they're not at the level of maybe Arsenal, Liverpool and Man City, it's been a lot better this this year, calendar year, in my view, as a neutral anyway. I was going to say, well, it's hard to argue with that because, look, it has been more positive. We've had a couple of players come back from injuries, but... Lately, Luke Shaw's been injured, Lissandra Martinez's been injured, and now, obviously, Hoyland is out injured. So, I think what's quite clear is that we just don't have the squad to deal with these kind of type of injuries. And when you look at the way Liverpool dealt with the injuries on Sunday, you look at every every club seem to have more injuries than ever this season. It's something you just have to deal with. And as a squad, we've been poorly assembled over the last five, six years, and we're just not capable of... Um, riding out these injuries and playing and performing um, to the same levels as if we did have our first eleven on. Or and look, we praised Man United over the last five weeks because they've won games, but we've always put an asterisk on those praise by saying, "Yeah, but they weren't that good." Like, yeah, okay, Hoyland started to score again, or Garnacho found a place for himself on, on right wing. Rashford got a little bit of confidence on the left wing. Bruno, okay, maybe not playing that well, but United going forward were a little bit better, hence the wins. And we won't, obviously, you don't moan when you're winning, but we always asterisk that sort of praise by saying this sort of performance was coming and this sort of result was coming. It wasn't like you you win four or five games and it's all rosy and the performances were there and everything was clicking. So, but. There are things to be positive about. Most, mostly the takeover and Dan Ashworth coming in, Omar Barada. So you can't. Well, I'm not going to sit here and slag everything off because there is hope. And as I've spoke and I've said many times on this podcast, all you want as a football fan is the hope that things will get better. So the hope's still there. Just the reality of this season is we probably are where we are, and the Champions League is way off. I agree with that. I've never thought United would be a Champions League challenge inside this season. I agree with the first part of what you said there, but not necessarily the second. They kind of contradict each other. I think you're right. You haven't got the squad capable of players like Luke Shaw, um, Lissandra Martinez and Hoyland coming out and then being able to win games. And you're right. You should be good enough to beat Fulham at home without those players. But what we're now doing, or what you went on to do, was then start saying, oh, we kind of saw this coming through that, that spell of four back-to-back wins where, okay, we played a bit better. And you're sort of making excuses as to why you were winning the games rather than saying, actually, when we had a lot of our best team playing, we're quite good and we're able to get results and we were pretty effective, which you were and you have been this season. But you are right, in my mind, in saying you just can't... I mean, the left-back one is Eric Ten Hag's fault all over or whoever's making the decisions in the, the comings and goings because how you can... Let the young lad go out to wherever he is, the one that was on loan in the championship last season, lose Regulon, Malassi is already injured, and just rely on Luke Shaw, who's been injured for, I think you said, 300 professional games over the last 10 years. That one's beyond me. There's no excuses for that. And there's lots of stuff that's been wrong with um, the management on and off the pitch of Man United for the last 10 years. We we all know that, and there's still um, bits of that creeping in and seeping into even fixtures as recent as this weekend. But I just didn't, like I said, want to come and shine a a negative light on what had preceded this Saturday, this calendar year, because I thought it had been quite good. But you're quite right, not able to cope with big-name players dropping out the squad at the moment. 
I also think that United, um, and we had Graham on, spoke about this last week. I thought on Saturday it was a lot of round pegs in square holes because Lindelof was in at left back and that's not his natural position. And it's not only not his natural position, he isn't very good there at all. He's not strong on his left foot. He's not quick. He's not dynamic. He's not a left back. I think Ten Hag's pretty clear that in his style, he needs a left-footed centre-back to play left centre-back. And Harry Maguire plays plays there, but we've not recruited a second centre-back who can play with their left foot for when Martinez is out. What really baffled me as well, really, really annoyed me at the weekend, is we went for a front three of Garnacho on the left, Amari Forson on the right and Rashford through the middle. All of those can interchange and play any of those positions. So why move all three of them about? You've moved Rashford from his natural left position. You move Garnacho from the right, who's been flying there, to put Garnacho on the left, Rashford through the middle. So they're now both playing out of position for where they have from the last month and a half to cater for Omari Forson to play on the right. Play Omari Forson through the middle. Or this lad's a young lad in the academy and you've got an £85 million right winger in Anthony who you've signed, who's celebrating his birthday that day. How low on confidence and how low down the pecking order is he to not be able to start a game where Hoyland's injured, Martial's injured, and we we haven't got a right winger to start. He is our right winger. So I thought that was a terrible decision. I thought that backfired. Um, I've already touched on the the left back and the the left centre back and how that doesn't work. So I thought he got that bang wrong on the day, actually. And what really, really topped it off for me, boys, was after the game, his media reports where he now seems really scared to lose any more of the dressing room and fall out of any other players. So he came out and praised the performance and said that United should have won that game and they showed real character to get back into it from 1-0 down and had chances to win it and should have gone on and won it and got caught being a bit naive towards the end because for everyone else who watched that and for the likes of Jamie O'Hara and Jason Cundy who were sat pissing themselves in the talk sport um, studio, United did not deserve to win that. They got completely outplayed by Fulham. And yeah, that that worries me. That does. What would you do at left back, considering you haven't got one now for the rest of the season? Do you reckon he'll change it? Move Lindelof inside and play a back three and put someone as a left wing back? Or do you reckon he'll just persist with someone that isn't a left back playing left back? I think his best bet, to be honest, and the one that makes most sense would be to put Delot left back and play Lindelof right back. Because I think it's incredibly harsh on Victor Lindelof to stick him in at left back and expect but you're him to cheap. You, you're doing exactly what you just spoke said about the front line there. What Ten Hag's doing with the back four is rather than replacing two round pegs and square holes, he's doing one and limiting it to Lindelof there because you then move Dallow, who's you know polarizing character, but let's be honest, is is obviously getting plaudits for how he's playing for Man United at right back. You're just doing what we've done with the front line there. What we've done now is we're paying for ridiculous squad management. Because let's not forget as well, we had Brandon Williams at one stage in the summer. He's at Ipswich playing. Alvarez, or sorry, Fernandez is out in Portugal. And Regulon's playing for Brentford, who I know isn't a Man United player, but was on loan there. Um, Ten Hag, another point from the weekend. He said, we didn't bring a striker in uh, in the summer to support uh, Hoyland because we've got Anthony Martial and we played some of our best football last year with Martial in the side and he was someone that we were relying on to take some of that burden. Why? No, but he, he also admitted for the first time in public that the reason why we've still got Martial in the squad is because he's so well paid and we can't get rid of him. He's on 240 grand a week 
you have there's there's no room in the squad to get another striker, especially when when your second striker is on two hundred and forty grand a week and hardly ever plays. This is his last year. He was never going to leave. If he went to a an MLS team, a Saudi team, I don't even think they'd be stupid enough to pay him two hundred and forty grand a week. So Eric Ten Hag, in his defence with Martial, hands were tied behind his back with that one because. He's never going to leave when he's on 240 grand a week, is it? But like you just said in your um, opening sort of statement, I guess, was that we're paying for poor squad management. And when you put Anthony Martial, an injury-pone player, on a five-year contract worth 240 grand a week, then this is what happens. Just looking at your um, squad from the weekend, Diallo on the bench, is that Ahmad? Yeah. Yeah. What's that forcing like then? Because I watched a lot of Ahmad last season for Sunderland and he's a player, very, very good, who I think is a good Premier League player. Maybe not at the level of Man United just yet, but that forcing must the, be decent if he started in front of him. The news got leaked on Thursday that he was going to start forcing off the back of the Hoyland injury. I put in the group chat Amari Forsen starting this weekend and that got leaked through the press. Apparently he's training really well and like, but apparently there's a side story with him that he's thinking about leaving Man United because of his lack of first team opportunities, a bit like Alanga, a bit like some of the other players. And I wonder if there was a little bit of that in it, but Ahmad, he asked to go, well, allegedly asked to go back out on loan, was told no, allegedly didn't go to the African Cup of Nations with Ivory Coast, who went on to win it and hosted it because he was told that to knuckle down and try and start to break into that first team because Sancho's gone to Dortmund and Anthony's not playing. And now he's sat not getting any minutes. He got, I think he got 10-15 in the end on Saturday and actually looked quite bright, if completely honest. But um, yeah, just, just really, really weird and poor squad management. And just a final statement on where United are at with their current injuries and um, issue, squad issues is that some people are calling for Anthony, our £90 million right winger, to play left back because he's left footed and defensive minded. So that's where we're at at the minute from a squad point of view. One side who it's looking a lot better for now in the top four race is Villa though. Uh, Villa beat Forrest at the weekend, two goals for Dougie Louise, another goal for Ollie Watkins. I'll be absolutely amazed if there's clubs not in for their players, but if they finish in the top four and have champs league, there might be absolutely no reason to sell them for Villa um, and they're just absolutely flying. And that's, I think that's reopened the gap up to Man United now to eight points. And with games starting to dwindle, I think that was a big weekend for Villa. And then just a couple other teams to mention as well for that is Crystal Palace, uh, one first win for Oliver Glasner, 3-0. And Wolves uh, also picked up a victory yesterday against Sheffield United um, as well. So good result for them. Laurie? Just a quick shout out to Ollie Watkins because he has now got the most goal involvement in the Premier League, um, ahead of the likes of Salah, ahead of the likes of Erling Haaland. And when you're entering into that kind of company for goals and assists, it isn't a good season. That's a world, world class season. So, I mean, I saw a, t- a tweet go out of the weekend. I don't, it might have been one of Tigo's accounts, actually, football tweet or something, or maybe not, saying, would you take Ollie Watkins with England in the summer? He's, he's got to go. He absolutely has to go, doesn't he? He's the most informed yeah. English player in the world, other than maybe Jude Bellingham. Um, but, yeah, just yeah, to see him up there with Salah and Haaland, who are guys that produce ridiculous numbers, and he's ahead of them, is just incredible, I think. So what a season he's had. Just goes to show how important 
um, certain managers can be forced, like certain individuals, because he's obviously he was obviously a very good player anyway. But the way Unai Emery's come in and just made him his main man and basically turned him into like because uh, I mean he still runs the channels um, very well, but he's turned him into almost like a penalty box striker now, where he's getting the goals and he's getting the assists and. Um, so yeah, look, it's all down to the individual how well they play and how well they're um, training, etc. But I'm reacting to the manager's instructions. So, so fair play to Ollie Watkins for that. But Unai Emery deserves a lot of credit for um, turning Watkins into that. Okay, not world class level, but I mean, he's getting there. And if he continues over the next couple of seasons this way, then you you have to say he is world class level. Yeah, and the other thing is, one of your favourite sayings is availability is the best ability. He's played every single game. And how good is yeah. that when your best player can play every single yeah, game and every single minute? So, yeah, yeah, big up Ollie Watkins, Villa, Unai Emery. What a season they're having. Yeah, and, as, actually, a manager, and as a manager, I just want to say, that's the mo- like, you just need to, you have to rely on your players. You can't, imagine... If, imagine if he, he turns around to Danny Ings because Ings was at Villa at the time when he when he arrived and basically said, right, Danny Ings, you're my main man. And then what would that do to the confidence of Ollie Watkins? And then two weeks later, Danny, Danny Ings gets injured because, let's have it right, he's quite injury prone. And then all of a sudden, Ollie Watkins is like, well, am I your main man because your main man's injured? So it's difficult for managers to um, back players who are injury prone. And um, he's obviously back the right horse there in Ollie Watkins. And I'll just end the Villa segment by saying Dean Smith's managerial career ended when he signed Danny Ings for Aston Villa because they were quite a good side. Signed Danny Ings, tried playing two up top, changed the whole system. As you just rightly said, Ollie Watkins was up front with him, but really out left somewhere. Um, And ever since then, he's gone from bad to worse, hasn't it? And Ollie Watkins has gone in the other direction. So... uh, yeah, I bet Dean Smith bemoans the signing of Danny Ings. That ties in quite nicely, actually, because Tom's brother, Toby, said that he'd have Danny Ings at Man United and that ended his career and chances of being on Pyramid Podcast. So <laughs> all centred around Danny Ings. Boys, let's move on to the EFL. And Lauro, uh, clips obviously been put online from the last pod where you declared the championship title race open. I must admit an hour into Friday night football between Leeds and Leicester, I thought that that door was getting slammed shut. But what a turnaround for Leeds and Ellen Road absolutely bouncing at the end there. Yeah, it's very, very, very rare that I say this, but Leicester were by far the better team um, I, I thought, same as the first game, the back four are just levels and levels above the championship. Ricardo Pereira, James Justin, Weltface, Yannick Vestergaard, they're too good. They were too good. They were stifling everything we were doing. Somerville couldn't get in the game. Rutter, who ended up getting man of the match, the first half was an absolute donkey. He gave the ball away every <laughs> single time he had it. And it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily his fault. He was just coming up against players that were twice, three times the level of the defenders that we're usually playing against. I thought Leicester were... Keenan Dusby Hall in midfield, by the way. He won the midfield battle and everything going forward on his own. Um, and what essentially I thought let Leicester down was um, 
a couple of players that have been very good for them this season, uh, season in Mavadidi um, and Fatawu, is it, on the other wing, weren't clinical with their chances and allowed us, um, you know, left the door ajar a little bit for us to, to come back into it. And although they were unlucky with the offside goal um, being disallowed, if you give us a, a sniff at Ellen Road of letting that crowd get up, as they did in the sort of 77th minute or so, then it can be very, very difficult to come back from. And like Moreska said after the game, when one went in, it you just knew that another one was coming. And to get a goal from each of our fullbacks and then a, a Dan James free kick, all of the substitutes from Daniel Farker being involved in all three goals was just a perfect ending to a night that is very, very unleads. That never happens to us. Normally, we'd have played Leicester off the park and they'd have nicked it 1-0. So to come back and score those three goals and uh, officially open that title race and cut the gap to six points was just absolutely salubrious to see. And let's see how both teams react now going forward in the next few fixtures. Yeah, it was a really good game. And uh, the, the biggest moment in that game was the offside decision um, because obviously come off the Leeds player into, I think it was Dakar's path who finished. And it should have been... And if the VAR um, was in the Championship, it would have been allowed. But I don't even think Leicester fans would begrudge VAR not being in, not being in the Championship. Oh, because you, you win some and you lose some in those um, instances. What I will say, I was having a look at the um, some of the stats in the Championship and it is looking pretty ominous for Leicester. Leeds is run. They have conceded the least goals, conceded the least shots, conceded the least shots on target, conceded the least XG in the whole of the league. And like Laurie said over the last couple of weeks about how important Saliba and Gabriel will be to Arsenal potentially winning the league, that platform that Leeds have sort of built with um, with Roden and Ampadu at centre-half and then the two in front of them who are sort of providing that protection, that that will be the most important thing if they go on to win the league. It's not so important really in the championship because you had you had Southampton lose on the weekend. They look like they're struggling a little bit. Ipswich, okay, they won, but can they sustain the title challenge? So it's not so important really in the championship who wins the league because it's just top two or nothing, isn't it? But um, really good for the championship that, that Leeds won that game and... Yeah, like you said, absolutely buzzing. What I will say, uh, Ellen Road was absolutely buzzing. What I will say is there was a tweet that said something along, or you saw many tweets, something along the lines of, you never see scenes like this in the Premier League. The Championship's like the best league in the world, etc. And okay, granted, I have fallen in love with the Championship this season. Fantastic league, especially because it hasn't got VAR. But Leeds Leeds were in the Premier League last season. Leeds were in the Premier League the season before. We do see scenes like that. It's just Ellen Road. It's a special place. And once that momentum got going, they scored that first goal. Like Laura, said, like Laura says, there was only going to be one winner. And yeah, it was bouncing. I think what Tigo you know trying what? to say is the Premier League's a much better place with Leeds United and Ellen Road in it. So 100%. Yeah, I was just going to say, I absolutely buzz off like Man United going to Ellen Road or Leeds coming to... Man United, that's an absolutely massive game. I'm not one of those fans who want all of my rivals relegated, apart from maybe Man City now with 115 charges. But yeah, Leeds, they add so much to the Premier League and I hope they get promoted. I agree. And it'd be nice to see Daniel Farker given another chance after two failed stints with Norwich, maybe with some more forward-thinking 
um, owners and backers in the 49ers. be a very interesting thing um, to see. However, we need to get there first. But Huddersfield next. Could it be 10 in a row? I think it probably will be against the Terriers. But one thing I'll just say, going back to that VAR point, is is that I don't think we've had like Leicester fans ringing up saying, oh, if it was for VAR, then we'd have been 2-0 up and we'd have won that game. I think it's more they've just concentrated on the chances that they missed. There was a, a ball that I think Dewsbury Hall put Dakar through in the second half and Dakar sort of took a shot with his right foot. It looked really weird because it went off at a horrendous angle, was nowhere near the target. And Dewsbury Hall's like arms up in the air, hitting the ground. And when you haven't got VAR, you don't blame your results on VAR or tight offside calls that haven't gone your way because it's not there and you don't want it. So you think about Leicester... Leicester will reflect on that on chances missed, not the fact that if there was VAR, the ball would have been called as not coming off of um, Chowdhury's uh, front yeah. and coming off of Ruter's. But, but it feels so much better being able to moan about a decision that's been made by the linesman, by the referee, and it's just, that's the decision. OK, we can argue whether it's the right decision or not, but that's the decision. When it comes to VAR, you're arguing about people in in VAR rooms looking at 15 different angles and still getting the decision wrong and then yeah. it becomes then it becomes like you're and also you've wasted four minutes of of you watching TV or watching the game and it's shite entertainment so also the ability to celebrate a goal as a fan in the moment we beat Villa 2-1 United and the first thing I put in the group chat for both goals was I thought that Hoyland was offside from the Maguire flick on and the second goal Kobe Minu gets or Kobe Minu gets past the ball before Dallow whips it in and I thought he might have strayed off because you get burnt like a chance where Garnacho scores at the Emirates and you think you've just won there and then it gets pulled back and the momentum shifts because Arsenal haven't conceded and you lose 3-1 you don't have that in the championship the ball goes in the back of the net the player looks to the official and if he carries on celebrating you know you've scored which is the best feeling yeah I really 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 wish we could reverse time to eight years ago before VAR existed and just never implement it. Only implement it for offsides and goal line technology. Completely objective things. A couple of results from the championship to reflect on. Ipswich won 3-1. They're actually level on points with Leeds now. I feel a bit sorry for Ipswich. I think they've almost been right written off in the title race and in the promotion hunt. And it's now down to the three teams that got relegated last year to go straight back up. But they keep chipping away and fair play to them. A uh, big result for them. But Tomo, Southampton lost against Millwall 2-1. Uh, yeah. Millwall did the classic thing of sacking their manager and then going and picking up three points. Seems to be the best thing to do if you want to win. Um, but apparently booze at St. Mary's at the end. Now, we've had Southampton in the Pyramid Cup uh, holding it for about 20 games in a 25-game unbeaten run. How on earth are we at the stage where Southampton are being booed? Yeah, look, it's a strange phenomenon, really, but... That... Like we spoke about a lot, Russell Martin plays this like possession style football. Like they had eighty one percent possession against Millwall, and really in the second half they resorted to long range efforts, a couple of half chances. They had a really good chance Adam Adam Armstrong in the eighty eighth minute to equalise, but it was a really good save from the Millwall keeper. But and look, I, I'm I'm not saying that, that the fans are well within their rights to boo because I think they've been on an unbelievable, like a club record-breaking unbeaten run. They're now they've now lost three out of the last four games. They did something similar at the start of the season where they lost four on the bounce, and they 
they reacted to that that poor run with that 25-game unbeaten run. Um, I guess the form of Leicester and Leeds have almost heightened that that expectation for Southampton and that almost desperation for points where these these drop points are massive now because Leicester and Leeds are streaking ahead. So, and like I said, just like I said at the start of it, the, the style of play, it's very possession-based possession, possession based and okay, that's fine when you're winning and you're passing um, teams off the park and it's quite Louis van Gaal style, side to side, not very, you're not penetrating quick quickly and it's not very exciting. Um, but when the results turn, it's quite easy to then get a bit of negativity about it. And that's, that's what happened at Man United with Louis van Gaal. I'm not comparing Russell Martin to Louis. Well, I am comparing him to Louis van Gaal. But um, it, look, the, the booze it is harsh, but they're on a bad run. And Leeds winning has exasperated that, that gap and potential um, to not get promoted. So it's a tough one for Russell Martin, but... So it's a big challenge now to get promoted um, with Leeds and Leicester doing so well. Or, well, Leeds yeah. doing so well. Leicester have obviously lost their last two. Brilliant title race, and I'm sure Southampton will be back. A blip losing three and four, but they've got some really good players. But i tell you where there might be some booze creeping in, and we sort of half mentioned it last week, and I was shut down a little bit, but Middlesbrough have lost 2-0 at home to Plymouth this weekend, right? They're 13th in the league, minus two goal difference. They've lost more than they've won, and they're now closer to the relegations than they are the playoffs. What are we saying on Michael Carrick there? Because there are a lot of teams in and around them there. I'm looking at Swansea, Blackburn, Bristol City, Sunderland, who have all chopped their manager for doing probably not as bad as what they're doing right now. Is he living off borrowed time, or are Middlesbrough going to give him to at least the end of the season the start of next? I think they'll give him they'll give him the start of next season. I think there's a lot of um context that have gone into their struggles, especially I think they lost their first seven games, didn't they, this season? Um they they lost their best attacking players over the summer and failed to replace them, like Graham said in the last podcast. And I think sometimes you can almost see that you've got a decent manager there and you potentially just need to give him time. And so so and look, we're not we're not in the training ground. We don't know the the like the we're not in the inner circle, so we don't know whether the players are still having him, like whether he's managing up well. All of these sort of um, details that we're not we're not a like we're not a part of. But they have been madly inconsistent this season, and like you say, they go they go to Leicester and win, and then lose to Plymouth at home. It's I agree that he should be given the time. I think he's shown last season he was a good manager. It's just interesting that it's an interesting case study to see how it goes for Middlesbrough from here because a lot of other clubs he'd be gone. Um, Or if he wasn't as big a name as Michael Carrick, he'd be gone by now. So it'll be very interesting to see next season after one good season and one what looks to be poor, how they go and how much time he gets next season. Um, Because like I said time is not a commodity that you get very much of in English football management, particularly in the championship where I think Luke Williams, who is the Swansea manager, he was appointed about three or four weeks ago. Um, or maybe a little bit longer than that is now something like the 15th longest serving in the league. (laughs) 
because of so many managerial axings uh, every two minutes. And it seems to be quite a panicky league whereby owners just hit the button as soon as there's even a sniff of danger. So fair play to the powers that be at Middlesbrough for sticking by him to now. And let's see how long that lasts if any more results happen like they did at the weekend. Because no matter what's happening, losing 2-0 at home to Plymouth ain't good enough for Middlesbrough. Yeah, but they have got Steve Gibson, haven't they, as the owner who's been there a very long time. Doesn't He's not one of these championship owners who overspends to, to get to that promised promise land of the Premier League. So if anyone is not going to hit the panic button, it will be him. Um, so, yeah, hopefully Michael Carrick gets, gets time. I don't think they'll get promotion this season or get into the playoffs this season. Just not quite good enough. But hopefully one or two additions in the summer and they can give it a promotion push next year because Michael Carrick, obviously being a former Man United, well, he's a, form, he's a Man United legend, you'd like to see him do well. Yeah, and if you the bookies are to be believed, he's about sixth, seventh favourite to take over from Eric Ten Hag at United. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure his Middlesbrough bottom half of the table form's quite showing that, but there we go. Yeah, but Oli got it after getting Cardiff relegated, so that's probably the right thing at Man United. <laughs> One thing um, doesn't seem to be like a match made in heaven is being a former England like international and a decent footy manager like Steven Gerrard. No, Frank Lampard. No, Wayne Rooney. Absolutely not. I think Paul Scholes went and did a stint at Oldham, didn't he? That went tits up, and now Carrick's not having the best of time of it at Middlesbrough. So yeah. trying to Don't think me. of any England. In- Scholes yeah. is one game at Oldham's house. You yeah. what? You at what? Plymouth away Tuesday night. Now I stay at home. The only thing I will say, right? I, I, I think the one thing these guys have in common is that they've all made their money as a football player, like enough money to never work again. So they almost don't need the ag of of being a manager. And when they go into that managerial role, where it's twenty four seven, seven days a week, like it's it's non-stop and it's pressure all the time. I think the one thing they all have in common is they probably just think, do we fucking need it? No. Well, yeah, I kind of get that, but I think it's just sometimes some managers can't put their ego at the door where they're better than the players that they're coaching or played at a higher level and able to portray their message because Pep, I'm sure he made plenty of money in football, albeit it was about before the mega riches, but he's done it. Zidane, he was a fairly good player and earned a fair amount of wedge. He's won a few Champs League. So I think it just comes down to ego sometimes. But then sometimes it's like players who play at a slightly lesser level in football seem to be able to portray their message and do better. You think of the likes of Klopp. So, um, yeah. Interesting point, though. I'm going to have to have a think if there's any former England internationals who've gone on to have really successful managerial careers. Gareth Southgate? (laughs) Well, TBC in the summer. Yeah. Couple of other championship games, boys, just to reflect on. So QPR, they actually retained the Pyramid Pod Cup. So they won 2-1 against Rotherham. Uh, actually helped get them out of the relegation zones. And I think moved Stoke into the relegation zone. So not looking good for Schumacher at Stoke. But Did Chris you... Willock scored yeah, I, the winner I there. Was just, I was just going to bring up that the QPR, I don't know if you saw, the day before that game, um, there, I think he's a right winger, Elias Chair, got sentenced to... Um, a year in prison in Belgium for assault. And I was like, obviously it went viral because I think he, he 
you stomped on someone's head or, or cracked their skull or something. And anyway, you get to Saturday afternoon and he's starting. Yeah, and not only is, Chris Willock. Yeah. And not yeah, not only is he starting, he, he made the mistake for Rotherham's first goal, <laughs> had an absolute stinker, and then he, he stayed on the pitch and set up Chris Willock's winner. So strange Trains going on in the championship. To add to that, I was listening to Talk Sport in the on the radio in my car, and they went live to um, were they at home? Yeah, Loftus Road, and the reporter was like, "And would you believe it? Guess who's got the assist? It was written in the stars. Elias Chair sets up Willock or whatever." And I was thinking to myself, "What? It was written in the stars that Elias Chair." got sentenced to a year in prison for stomping on someone's head in Scandinavia and then comes home and puts through Chris Willock. Why are we celebrating that? Like, how do you get sentenced to prison and then start on the Saturday? Maybe it was a farewell game, I don't know. But, yeah, interesting one there. It just seems like get sentenced to prison now don't mean going to prison. It means you play professional football. And QPR, by the way, coming out, they come out with a statement saying, oh yeah, no, our investigations are still ongoing. No, 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 the law, the law, <laughs> he's got to go to prison. Do you remember when Derby had that driving crash and it was Mason Bennett, Tom Lawrence and Richard Keogh and Tom Lawrence and Mason Bennett got kept because they were quite good players, but Richard Keogh was a 36-year-old centre-back they wanted to get rid of anyway, so he got sacked. They sacked him and kept Tom Lawrence and Mason Bennett. They just If that had been a poor QPR player, like a rubbish one that doesn't play on loads of money, he'd have got sacked, I reckon, on Friday. But no, QPR are still doing their internal investigations, which, to my understanding, supersedes English law. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, he got sentenced to jail in Belgium. So I wonder what the extradition rules are in um, yeah. between England and Belgium. But in that case, either way, yeah, the either internal investigations of Queen's Park Rangers certainly supersede uh, the law in Belgium for sure. <laughs> yeah, maybe but... he's on, maybe he's on tags. I can't play away games or evening games, but three o'clock on Loftus Road and Elias Chair will be in that starting eleven. Uh, and also just one final thing just to call out is Sheffield Wednesday won again. So just touched on Stoke going into relegation zone, but a bit of a uh, bit of work being done there by Danny Roll and Wednesday are starting to etch closer to what would probably be an absolutely great escape uh, from where they were at the first part of the season. Yeah. So just to build on my apology of last week of those two managers and those two clubs, they've both gone and won on the weekend. So well done guys. You've made me look very stupid. Stoke City, by the way, I mean that is just the impossible club. They can't, they can't buy a result. They can't buy a decent manager that can get results there, and they haven't been able to for years. Like I, I mean, they've got Stephen Schumacher in there at the moment, who was very, very highly thought of at Plymouth and did brilliantly getting them promoted and winning the league in League One last season. And not even he can get a tune out of any of them. And if anything, it's got worse. So, oh, I'd hate to be a Stoke fan at the moment. I hate it. I mean, we've we've spoken, haven't we, about the perception of Hull and West Brom always winning and Sunderland always winning. Stoke have done quite well to remain in the championship for five years after losing every single game 2-3-0 and be booed at a half-empty Britannia so, or Bet365 Stadium. So maybe it's kind of time for them to go down and uh, reset. I saw a, a news article this week saying Alex Neil would be open to return to Sunderland. I thought, I bet you would. That Alex Neil Alex Neil got came in after Lee Johnson and got finished the job of getting Sunderland promoted from League One, and then Stoke came in, offered him a bit more money, and he went there. 
obviously absolutely shit the bed all over the place at Stoke and has led them into a team that are facing relegation now. And now he's open to returning to the Stadium of Light. Well, I bet you are, Alex. But I think it's League One for you, my friend. Just quickly on on Sunderland and my love for um, football documentaries. Season three of Sunderland Till I Die is out and Alex Neal was on there and he come across very well. Um, Shout out. Please, everyone, watch it. It's very good. Boys, we move on to League One. Uh, some results just to cover. Blackpool absolutely demolished Bolton 4-1. Uh, they're well in the playoff hunt now, Blackpool. Great result for them. Just a quick one on that Blackpool result. I don't know if everyone, um, if anyone watched the highlights, but I did. And that um, Karamoko Dembele, who, if I, if I remember rightly, went viral um, on social media in 2016-2017 as a 13-year-old um, Celtic player who was playing for Celtic under-20s and Scotland under-16s. And he was balling. And it seemed like he was going to be the next Freddie Adu, if you, if you remember rightly from that football manager wonder kid. Um, obviously, a long time has passed since those viral days of him being a 13-year-old playing up, upper, upper levels. But I think... In that game against Bolton, he had three. He, he was basically instrumental in every single goal. And I was having a look at his stats for Blackpool because he's gone gone off the radar a little bit since leaving Celtic, and he's got ten assists in the league this season. And um, he's twenty one years old now. He's still. The, I think the problem with him always was he's quite slight and very short and small. So maybe his sort of better days will be ahead of him when he feels out and gets a bit of a more of a man's body. But he seemed to have found a bit of a home up at Blackpool. He's on loan at the minute from Stad Brest. Um, so, yeah, nice to see him doing well after, obviously, um, him going viral seven or eight years ago when he was a, when he was a 13-year-old. And uh, he, he certainly played well against Bolton on the weekend. Yeah, and that's not a new cycle. If any scouting department out there now can pick up a 13-year-old anywhere with the surname Dembele... We've had Musa, we've had Usman, we've had Sariki, now we've had Karamoko. If that's his surname, he's going to be a player. So get on to whoever's got a Dembele in the Youth Academy somewhere. I'm sure there'll be one playing their trade out in France or something. Great win for Blackpool. Charlton drew 0-0 with Portsmouth. Another uh, step in the right direction for Nathan Jones. And I fancy them to, to go on and pick three points up soon. Sounds like they, he's starting to get a little bit of a tune out of them against Bolton, uh, against Portsmouth, who uh, are right up there at the top. And Barnsley beat Derby. And Lauro, I actually saw an Acker that you had on at the weekend had Barnsley in it to, to beat Derby. So you must have uh, predicted that one and fancied them at Oakwell to pick up all three against Derby. Yeah, well, they're just a good side, aren't they? Sometimes if you have like four feet second, you just go with the home side, don't you? Because it's just because you're a derby doesn't mean you're going to go to Oakwell and overturn a, a Barnsley side who are only three points behind them in the league. So, yeah, I did fancy Barnsley. One team I'll never be betting on again, those Port Vale. I think you were involved in the same bet, Murph. Both teams to score, 11 out of 12. All Port Vale had to do is stick the ball in the net at home against uh, a thankless Lincoln side. And they lost 2-0. So that's the last time Port Vale will be involved in any of my accumulators. Yeah, I mean, that's the Darren Moore effect, right? I don't know what part of their 10-game unwinning run that I fancied them, but I didn't even need them to get a point. I just needed them to put the ball in the back of the net. But did you, there I don't we know, go. Have we, I don't know if we spoke about it on the podcast or outside the podcast. Did you boys see how long 
a contract he had. Too long, isn't it? Five, five yeah. and a half years. Yeah. Just well, baffles me, some of these decisions. I thought that was a weird job for him to... I thought it was a weird appointment and a weird job for Darren Moore to accept. To go from Sheffield Wednesday, Huddersfield, two kind of championship-size uh, Yorkshire clubs, to then just accept Port Vale two weeks after being sacked, you think to yourself, how have they done that? But they've obviously given him job security for the next five years for a manager who's been, in my opinion, found out a little bit. I mean, I think I've said before, the Sheffield Wednesday fans weren't that keen on him last season and that he ended up having that ridiculous game against uh, Peterborough where they come back from 4-0 down in the playoffs, um, but didn't last very long in the championship and then was pretty woeful, I think, for Huddersfield. I'm not sure what part of his recent uh, managerial showings have made Port Vale think he'll be the man for them. But I don't want to be too harsh. Um, Comes across a really nice guy, but... Yeah, I'm not sure. And certainly hasn't got the strikers putting the ball in the back of the net, that's for sure. No, he does not. Elsewhere in League One, wins for Peterborough and Stevenage. Uh, well in amongst it in the uh, playoff positions there for League One. But Oxford did lose. And then just into League Two, shout out to Mansfield. They won 5-1 against Salford. They're actually now top of the table. Stockport have been top for months and months it feels like but Mansfield top now with a game in hand albeit we have always said points on the board versus games in hand but um, chance there to build a little bit of a lead in League 2 there for Mansfield Gillingham beat Wrexham 1-0. Gillingham are now into the playoffs as well. So they've snuck into it. A couple of pre-season bets that were put on are reliant on Gillingham going up. So nice to see them moving in the right direction. Uh, but Stockport, who were top, they dropped some points. They drew 0-0 with Swindon. They've actually only won one in their last six league games now, Stockport. So just maybe we talk about sides at this time of the year coming into form at the right time to climb into the playoffs and, and go up through it. But Stockport just hitting the wrong form at the wrong time there. Um, and they'll need to, to stop the rot there if they still want to go up automatically. Just just on that, Murph, actually, we spoke a lot about how mad League Two is. And I had a look at the form table because it does seem like quite a lot of the promotion contenders are struggling a little bit lately. And I, obviously, Stockport, one win in six. They're 19th in the form table. You've got Wrexham, who are obviously going from promotion as well. They've lost three of the last six games. They're 16th in the form table. Notts County, who we spoke a lot about, obviously come up with Wrexham last year. They're 21st in the form table, having lost four of their last six. They're out of out of promotion um, contendership at the minute. And then Barrow, obviously, had a really good season. They're 22nd in the form table, and they've lost four of their last six. So what's that? Four or five promotion teams or promotion contenders that I've just mentioned, all having fantastic seasons up until about six weeks ago. They're really stumbling. And it goes to show how hard it is to to do that Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, and just grind out results. And um, excellent league, just fantastic, entertaining, brilliant. And um, yeah, I just love the English football pyramid. Just on form, though, uh, Mike Williamson, Lauro, I know another podcast tweeted this, but 17th of October, he was appointed at MK Dons. In that time, he's got 42 points. No side have got more points in that time. At the weekend, they won 3-0 against Newport. They're into fifth place now, and they're three points off crew, who are in that third automatic uh, promotion position. So things looking up for the Dons, and what a start Mike Williamson's made to, to league football life. 
Yeah, well, he's a really good manager. I, I saw a lot of his Gateshead side in the National League last season, and he's one of these sort of forward-thinking, expansive football coaches that everyone wants nowadays, and it seemed a good fit when they appointed him. But I couldn't believe that when I saw that he'd picked up more points than any other team in League Two since October. That just goes to show the sort of up-and-down nature of every team in that league because it doesn't even feel like they've been... It didn't feel like he set the world alight there. Um, and they're only fifth now. They couldn't have been that far off fifth when he came in, you wouldn't have thought. Oh, I don't mean they were that bad under Graham Alexander. So um, I might be wrong. Maybe they were really struggling. But I was really surprised to see that. And I thought maybe like a team like Crew um, would, would have top in that table. But obviously not. And yeah, I mean, MK Dons, are, although they're a bit of a franchise football club, they're too big to be in League Two, really, aren't they? Yeah, but you say that. But I, I watched the highlights and... Okay, yeah, it was a great performance and they beat Newport, who we spoke a lot about in the last podcast, who were banging form. They beat them 3-0 comfortably, but the stadium's empty. Yeah. And it's it's honestly like a hollow shell of a football club. It looked horrendous. So I don't really... Okay, he's done a good job, but I don't want them promoted. No offence to MK Dons fans, but it just looked hollow is a good word to describe it. Outside of the Footy League boys, we've got midweek action starting tonight as the FA Cup uh, returns. And Maidstone, who we have spoke about, went and won at Ipswich last time out and a National League South team still in the FA Cup. Not the dream tie, but they do play tonight away at Coventry. Uh, and potentially, if they've beaten Ipswich, they'll be looking at Coventry, who've lost a couple of games recently as a chance to get into that quarterfinals. And if Maidstone get into the last eight, then then what a story that will be. Yeah, but just another example of how piss poor the FA Cup's run. They're playing tonight on TV, going up against West Ham and Brentford, who are also on TV, playing in the Premier League. It just baffles, it honestly baffles me. Why would you put an FA Cup game, a Maidstone as well, OK, I'm glad they're on TV, but why would you put it up against a Monday Night Football? Strange. I think they've been desperate to get that game on TV, but there's Tuesday and Wednesday night games where they put, I know it's not great fixtures, but Man United on terrestrial TV are going to be on TV. So they're on TV on Wednesday against Forest. So I think they're rewarding Maidstone with a TV slot and moved it to Monday. But that would just be my opinion. Laura? Uh, For me, hoping for a Coventry win tonight. Um, Maidstone United have gone so far down in my estimations as a football club. And it's down to a couple of individuals at the club who have let the city or town of Maidstone down dreadfully. Um, Following Yeovil Town's visit there last month, um, there were some sort of handbags between the two fans. Um, Some not so savoury chant from Maidstone, but I'm sure, um, you know, equally as bad from Yeovil at the same time. But however, their directors decided to come out and issue a statement saying we're going to think about banning. Um, teams like Yeovil Town bringing fans with a, a history of poor behaviour from their supporters. And uh, it was met with a, a huge backlash from the football community. I would imagine those directors um, have been fired or relieved of their duties at Maidstone United ever since. <laughs> and, but the, I mean, the fans were really, really embarrassed. Even the Maidstone fans were like, blimey, like, it, that's hard to watch um, and hard to read, even from a Maidstone point of view so um appreciate that from the Maidstone fans but their directors have really let them down and they deserve to go out the FA Cup tonight so play up Sky Blues up the Coventry and hopefully we'll see you in the next round of the FA Cup Wow 
touched on Chelsea versus Leeds and that Coventry versus Maidstone uh, game there. And I just alluded to Forest Man United being on TV on Wednesday. The other games left in the competition are Liverpool versus Southampton, uh, Blackburn versus Newcastle, Bournemouth, Leicester, Luton, Man City and Wolves versus Brighton. So the prize on offer there, a place in the last eight quarterfinals of the competition where it starts to get really serious. Laurie, just touched on uh, Yeovil there. Um, and their game against Maidstone, which I think was probably their last loss, was it? Um, Yeovil lost at the weekend again against Chelmsford. I know a couple of suspensions, a few injury issues, so a game that we both said we'd probably have taken a point at as uh, as Yeovil fans, but uh, did go on to lose the game. Yeah, just just got pipped by a side that's in good form at the moment. They're second in the league now, Chelmsford, after that win, but that only moves them within 12 points of Yeovil. So it was one that we could afford to lose, but it's not one that could be setting the tone for any kind of dampening of the form going into a uh, a tricky few fixtures coming up now away from home against Farnborough and Averley. So they're allowed that. You're allowed to lose every now and again, particularly when your best player is suspended um, and all your goal scorers are injured, but that can't set the tone. We need to bounce back and beat Farnborough on Saturday. So um, well done to Chelmsford. They're a good side. They're one of the better teams I've seen at Hughes Park this season. We drew earlier on in the year. And uh, yeah, good luck to them in the playoffs. Great stuff. And then, Tomo, just come to yourself. Finally, you are up for this week's trivia question. So let us have it. Right, yeah, let's hope I go viral like Loro's one last week. But, um, right, OK, so Gareth Barry turned 43 years old on Friday. And he is um, the man with the most Premier League appearances of all time. He has made 653 appearances in the Premier League. What I want to know is who else makes the top five all-time Premier League appearance list. So I've given you number one, Gareth Barry. And what I want to know from the listeners um, is who else makes the top five. Great stuff. Well, get in contact with us, guys. Uh, Let us know who finishes second, third, fourth and fifth uh, in those appearance lists for the Premier League. Boys, that's all we've got time for. We'll be back on Thursday where we will reflect on all the kind of midweek action, including the FA Cup. Look ahead to the weekend action as always. But boys, been a pleasure. Cheers. Cheers, boys. One, two, three.